We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome to this Dog Days of Summer episode number 317 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Moonwalk 2, The Rim of Cone Crater. I should probably know... Uh, this has begun this extravehicular activity, moonwalk. Uh, earlier than had it been anticipated, uh, the astronauts didn't sleep as long as they had expected to, and they're out and around. And the first thing they've got to do is go out and fix the antenna on the ALSEP, the uh, package of instruments they've got, because Mission Control reported that the signal was weak and they'll fix it. Their plan when they get on the surface, Sandy, will be that Shepard will go over to work on that antenna at the central station of the scientific experiments package while Mitchell starts to load hand tools aboard the Met or rickshaw so that they can make the big and very important traverse to Cone Crater, which has been described to us by scientists as the most important single objective of this mission. The majority of Moonwalk 2 would be dedicated to reaching the rim of Cone Crater, the wide, deep geological gold mine which scientists believed was actually the remains of an ancient volcano. The goal was to find rocks that had been ejected from the volcano billions of years ago, ancient slag that might harbor clues to the mysteries of the moon's origin. Just past 2 a.m. on Saturday, February 6th, Shepard and Mitchell emerged from Antares. They began their preparations for the traverse to Cone Crater by loading supplies onto the two-wheeled rickshaw-styled cart called the MET, the Modular Equipment Transporter, which carried geology tools, sample bags, magazines of film, and other gear. It also carried a message from Gene Cernan and the backup crew. You guessed it, another beep-beep patch. At 2.51 a.m., the men left Antares and headed to the east, where Cone Crater rose into the glare of the morning sun. It would be the longest, most difficult lunar trek two astronauts on foot would ever make. Okay, let's start out that direction and take a look around. Okay, and I'll aim the camera. 
While Shepard pulled the Met, Mitchell studied a photo map. Their route would take them past a number of large craters, then onto Cone's flank. Reaching the upper slopes, they would head northeast along a broad ridge, following it right to the crater's edge. But almost immediately, Mitchell and Shepard had trouble spotting the craters they used as checkpoints. The place was a sea of hummocks, like sand dunes with depressions in between. Some of them were 10 to 15 feet deep. Under the brilliant sun and black sky, it was like an alien rock-strewn Sahara, and just as difficult to navigate. Mitchell found himself looking at the map, thinking, that next crater ought to be a hundred meters away. But it was nowhere in sight. Even a large crater could be so well hidden from his view that he wouldn't spot it until he was right next to it. With some care, Mitchell and Shepard managed to locate their first sampling stop. During this moonwalk, the astronauts would stop at planned locations called geological stations. The first stop was called Station A. It was about 150 meters northeast of the lunar module and 90 meters north of Triplet Crater. At this station, the crew collected a double-length core tube, two bags of samples, photographed a panorama of the area, and took the first lunar portable magnetometer measurement. The geological station stops continued through the entire moonwalk up and down Cone Crater, all the way to Station H. Okay, this is probably pretty good. Yeah, this is a good place for A. And you all might also comment, Fredo, that the, they have an appearance here quite often like raindrops, uh, a very few raindrops that splattered to surface. It gives you that appearance. Uh, obviously, they haven't, but it's that sort of texture in places. Yeah, I think, uh, I, was just, I was just about to say that there's a relationship between this texture and these uh, small surface pebbles. Okay, point A. Okay, point A. Uh, we do a double core LPM. I'll start with the LPM and a pan. Okay, I'll start with the TDS. After more walking and deliberating, they found their second stop. They lingered there just five minutes, long enough for Shepard to pick up a single rock as a grab sample. Then, as Mitchell took his turn pulling the Met, he gave the rallying cry to the top of Cone Crater. Okay, the next stop is the top of Cone. Get everything secured for that trip. Okay, and I uh, would like a frame count okay, for you. Uh... Okay, I've got the Met. Okay, uh, you want to go first and I'll follow. Okay, to the top of Cone Crater. In Houston, Mitchell's words were heard by Capcom Fred Hayes, who had once planned to make this climb with Jim Lovell. Now he served as Shepard and Mitchell's communications link with Mission Control, and with a backroom full of eager geologists. As he listened, Hayes followed along on his own photo map. 
He could also check the men's position by glancing at one of the big screens at the front of the control room. On the board, Hayes saw that the men should be near the sloping side of Cone Crater. Then came Mitchell's voice. We're starting uphill. flank was firmer, but there were more rocks, and Mitchell was forced to slow down as he threaded a winding course among the craters. Every time the Met's wheels hit a rock, it lurched upward in slow motion, and he worried it would tip over and scatter equipment and samples across the landscape. Shepard finally grabbed the back of the cart and the two men carried it. While Shepard jokingly muttered, left, right, left, right, like a foot soldier. From Earth, Fred Hayes radioed, There are two guys sitting next to me who kind of figured you'd end up carrying it. He did not have to explain what he meant. Gene Cernan and his lunar module pilot, Joe Engel, had bet Shepard and Mitchell a case of scotch that they would not make it to the top of the cone as long as they had to drag the Met with them. But they were determined. The view from the 1,100-foot-wide pit would be spectacular. Furthermore, the scientists had told them the deepest rocks blasted out of Cone would lie at the rim itself. And the uh, soil here is a bit firmer, I think, than we've been on before. Uh, except around what uh, the mounds in between craters where it's been thrown up. But by and large, it seems to have a little firmer footing. We're not sinking in as deep. Now that should uh, help you with the climb there. Yeah, it helps a little bit. Al's picked up the back. Al's got the back of the mat now, and we're carrying it up. I think it seems easier. That's right. With or without the Met, they would get there. Anything else in Mitchell's mind would be less than a full-up mission. Just ahead, the ground sloped upward in what was surely the last rise before the summit. But the climb was far more tiring than they expected. The stiffness of their pressure suits fought every step. Okay, you want to rest here with this rock, okay? 
Uh, this is the first big boulder we've seen in Houston. Uh, I think it's worthwhile taking a picture of it with the close-up. Go ahead and keep going. I'll pull on up. We probably ought to take a pan to locate everything here while you're taking the close-up. As Shepard and Mitchell took a much-needed rest, they stole a moment to look behind them at the bright, undulating plains of Framaro. Tracks from the Met's two small rubber tires stretched like shiny ribbons down the hillside into the broad valley where Antares rested like a tiny-scale model. Already the men were more than twice as far from their lunar module as any previous moonwalkers. Like their predecessors, Shepard and Mitchell found that the lack of familiar landmarks and the unreal clarity of the scene made it almost impossible to judge distances, and that only made navigating more difficult. But the climb was almost over now. From this high place, Shepard and Mitchell savored the anticipation of victory. But one thing puzzled Mitchell. If they were nearly at the rim of the crater, it didn't look anything like he had expected. On one of the field trips with the geologists, they had visited a nuclear explosion crater in Nevada, and that thing had boulders the size of small cars around its rim. But there were no such rocks here. Seconds later, he and Shepard reached the top of the rise, and Mitchell knew why. We hadn't reached the rim yet, Shepard said, his voice betraying little of his surprise. All they had done was climb over a ridge out ahead. Cone's flank rose into the distance. Suddenly, Mitchell wasn't at all sure where they were. He told Hayes, Our positions are all in doubt. Well, we haven't reached the rim yet. Oh boy, we got fooled on that one. I'm not sure that was flank we were at a minute ago either. Yep. And, uh, 
would say we'd probably do better to go up to those boulders there. Yep. Document that. Use that as a turnaround point. Yep. It's going to take longer than we expected. Our positions are all in doubt now, uh, Fredo. What we were looking at was a flank, but it, it wasn't really, uh, the top of it wasn't the rim of coal. we got a ways to go yet. Okay, Ed, and, uh... Well, uh, perhaps you can think with us if you want. I'd say, uh, that the rim is uh, at least, uh, 30 minutes away. Uh, we're approaching the edge of the boulder field here from the south uh, flank. Let's look at the map. And what I'm proposing is perhaps we use that as a turnaround point. It seems to me that we spend a lot of time in Traverse if we don't, and we don't get very many samples. At 4.09 a.m., down the hall from Mission Control in the Science Operations Room, a 39-year-old geologist named Gordon Swan listened to the transmissions from Framaro. Since the early 1960s, Swan had brought his considerable energy and geologic expertise to the work of planning lunar explorations for the U.S. Geological Survey. Raised in western Colorado, Swan had the humor, sensitivity, and political savvy to be an ideal leader of the Apollo 14 field geology investigation. Swan had helped devise the traverse Shepard and Mitchell were now struggling to complete. Over the years, he had gotten to know most of the astronauts on geology trips and had made some good friends but he never managed to get close to Shepard and Mitchell. Before the flight, Shepard had told him, I guess you realize rocks and geology aren't too big with me, but I'll try to do a good job for you. I can understand that, Swan had answered. I'm not too big on aeronautical engineering. Shepard replied, I guess we understand each other. Now that he was on the moon, Shepard seemed to be confirming his promise. He was making his own geologic observations. A little earlier, he had even corrected Mitchell's description of a splattered rock. Swan wasn't surprised, though, that he and Mitchell were having trouble navigating. He knew well from Conrad and Bean's experience that it was one thing to see a feature on an orbital photo and another to recognize it standing on the moon with no obvious topographical clues. The solution was training. Swan had offered to brief Shepard and Mitchell on how to spot landmarks, and they had invited him to the Cape a few weeks before launch. But when Swan met with them in the crew quarters, they seemed unconcerned. We'll have the maps, they told him and you guys will be in the back room telling us where to go. Swan did his best to get his message across, but the truth was that he and the other geologist couldn't do as well at navigating from a quarter million miles away as the men who were on the moon. And now, no one in the back room knew exactly where Shepard and Mitchell were. In his headset, Swan could hear the sound of heavy breathing, The climb was taking its toll. A few minutes ago, Shepard's heart rate had hit 150, prompting a flight surgeon in mission control to request that they stop for a rest. One of the doctors called back to the science support room and asked, 
How important is it to get to the top of Cone Crater? The question was fielded to Swan, but he did not want to answer. Cone Crater was a natural excavation into the Framaro, and the closer Shepard and Mitchell got to the rim, the deeper the source of rocks they would pick up. The deepest rocks, and perhaps the most important, would lie near the crater's edge. Getting to the rim was desirable, but not paramount. But Swan did not want to say that. If he downplayed the rim, he feared the doctors would call Shepard and Mitchell back. If he recommended to keep going, he knew the managers in the back row of Mission Control might veto the request. Swan hoped the men would push on as long as they could, and as long as Mission Control would let them. So he filibustered. Even as he spoke, Swan listened to the voices from the moon. Shepard was arguing to spend more time on collecting samples. He had spotted some boulders up ahead, which he felt sure were deep ejecta from the crater. He wanted to sample them and turn back. Swan could hear that Mitchell wasn't happy about that idea. Oh, let's give it a whirl. We can't stop without looking into Cone Crater, Mitchell told Shepard. We've lost everything if we don't get there. Swan could understand Mitchell's frustration. No one had ever visited a 370-yard lunar crater, and after coming all this way, it was only natural that Mitchell wanted to look into it. But Swan doubted he would see anything of scientific importance. The unmanned orbiter photos had shown no signs of exposed layers or other features. Just then, Fred Hayes called back to ask for a verdict, and everyone in the room agreed that Shepard and Mitchell had come close enough. Swan heard Hayes' radio. The word from the back room is they would like for you to consider where you are, the edge of Cone Crater. Mitchell answered, Thank your finks. But Hayes responded with a bit of leeway, If they thought they could reach the rim soon, it was their decision. Mitchell wasn't giving up, 
and Mission Control was extending the moonwalk by half an hour. Swan smiled when he heard Shepard say, We'll press on a little farther, Houston, and keep your eye on the time. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 317 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 14, Moonwalk 2, Part 1, Cone Crater. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. If you're looking for old episodes, the first 147 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Now I have an important announcement. Next week will be an encore episode because I will be dragging my camper all the way up to Duluth, Minnesota. And that is a long way. So it will be the continuation of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 with the first ever moonwalk by Neil Armstrong. I had just a couple of afterthoughts on this week's episode. Once again, I relied heavily on Andrew Chaikin's book, A Man on the Moon, and he had a great write-up of the second moonwalk. So I want to credit him for that. I would say, if you could read only one book on the Apollo moon missions, I would recommend his as the one to read. Okay, what did you think of the moonwalk so far? It was certainly more physically challenging than Moonwalk 1, and a little more interesting to me as they were doing more exploration work than laying out scientific experiments. Of course, I did enjoy learning about what the ALSEP equipment did. Now, on this moonwalk, Moonwalk 2, something happened 
that was a bit unusual. They argued about whether to continue to the rim of Cone Crater, with Mitchell resorting to the lowest level of arguing, which was calling people names, specifically Finks. Obviously, Shepard thought that they had gone far enough, but Mitchell was adamant that they should go to the rim. Even the geologist, Mr. Swan, didn't think there would be any significant scientific reason to go all the way to the rim. Now, this put Shepard in the position of having to make a final decision. And to his credit, Shepard listened to Mitchell. And understanding that Mitchell probably had more knowledge on the subject than he did, made the decision to continue to the rim. What would you have done? I like to think I would have done the same thing Shepard did. But was Shepard's decision correct? Will they reach the rim? Find out in two weeks on episode 318. Okay, the pictures for this week's episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. Well, folks, I am happy to report that we did receive some support from very generous contributors to the podcast over the past week. I'm hoping this is the last week of the dog days of summer so we can get back to normal. But we're certainly not there yet. Now, I would like to acknowledge this week's new contributors and thank them for supporting the podcast during this financial drought. David N. donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Matthew O. donated at the Orion level and earned a moon emoji. Steve C. from Georgia sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. John F. from Wisconsin donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Judith J. donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. John E. from California donated at the Mercury level. Mark H. from the U.K. donated at the Vostok level. Tim P. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And M. W. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. If you are enjoying the content provided here, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. To do so, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. And here's something new. Several supporters have set up PayPal to make small monthly contributions to the podcast as well. In the past, this did not work, but now it seems to be working, so there's another choice if you would like to do that. All supporters are rewarded in four ways. Contributors' names are added on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. Contributors receive a thank you message from me and are recognized on the podcast and are automatically entered in the weekly giveaway. So far this year, we are still at 231 Patreon donors. We lost two and gained two. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 405 with a goal of reaching 600 by the end of 2019. For the 405 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. Here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. I am happy to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, 
I selected Mike Salmon. Mike Salmon, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 405 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. We will have the uh, Encore episode next week, and then the following week, we will continue Apollo 14 with episode 318. So long for now.